joining us again here for another episode of decode i'm joined again by our lovely co-host young gombin hey and we have joining us meta nomad and hey. uh, meta nomad is host of hermetics podcast um you should definitely check that out also author of exiting modernity so thank you for joining us meta yeah thanks very much thanks for having me yeah an absolute pleasure to have you i think today uh we'll talk about uh, sort of the entire breadth of your work, but specifically, I think a lot of our questions are in regards to a methodology of possession. So I, I was interested first off just in the structure of the book, because, you know, when I first picked up the book on, and it says, you know, on the philosophy of Nick Land, I'm kind of expecting a monograph or something akin to the philosophy I've read in the past, but I was very surprised and I would liken the structure to a personal right or experience of initiation into like a mystery school. It reminded me, I had read recently How to Know Higher Worlds by Steiner, the German idealist. And I guess he was a initiate in some mystery school, but it reminded me of that structure of, how would you explain it? Experiential mysticism thing. I'm wondering what made you write the book that particular way? It's kind of a departure from your other work. Yeah, I guess it is a departure from ever work in some sense. So the thing that made me write it in that way, I mean, the, there's been obviously, at least within our circles, a fair bit written about land. He's a pretty sort of interesting figure for anyone who's trying to find the bleeding edge of philosophy. You know, things, you know, people who've gone to the academy, got stuck on the, the Marx labor route or the leftist route or found, you know, that they're, they're not really getting anywhere with, I mean, who are the big figureheads in that form of philosophy at the moment? Derrida, still Marx, maybe Levinas, Foucault, mm -hmm. uh, Heidegger, Baudrillard, maybe if you're lucky. Yeah, uh, I, but they all, to a degree, and this is like a broad brushstroke, just within this same sort of atmosphere, right? There's this feel a bit stuck. So I guess, so you know, anyway, long story short, <laughs> in our sphere, people are writing about land, and I think people online in these small blogs, it's really interesting to write, write these things because they're not constrained. And Land clearly wasn't constrained in his writing. Like he didn't feel mm -hmm. the pressure. If you read, well, basically anything he's written. But I mean, his first book, Thirst for Annihilation, is like, well, he didn't care. Like he didn't care about academic credentials, obviously, right. because it's super, you know, in quotation marks, experimental. So I'd read most of the big things that people have written on Land, some which aren't actually that easy to find. And the, and the probably the longest thing that's been written on Land before my book, if you can consider what I'm writing really about his philosophy at all, a PhD dissertation by Stephen Overy. Now, it's a great thesis. It's, it's interesting to read because I'm into, you know, the people he's he's citing, which is Land, of course, Deleuze and Guattari, mm -hmm. and it's taking on Leotard as well, and Antiedipus, things like this. But um, it's not Land, it's, it's like dead Land. And Land is like a, a necromancer of philosophy, right? He's mm -hmm. like the living dead. He's just doing some crazy stuff i mean this is all very vague um so i read that and i thought well this is sort of isn't in the spirit of land or this isn't in the like the productive element of land so i thought well you could write a monograph but in my opinion much like when you read books about nietzsche or bataille or even deleuze which are very like right here's this here's you know this is what the body without organs is dun, 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 dun. or this is what the solar anus is dun, 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 dun. and it's like done in a very analytical sense of like a textbook and i thought well all the philosophy's dead by the time you've done that by the time mm -hmm. there's citations on the page the philosophy's dead so i didn't really want to do that so really i mean 
there's plenty of little hints in there that I'm clearly uh, like in the spirit of the, his book on Bataille and also in the spirit of Bataille himself. I'm just being directly influenced by that almost like I see it as a lineage. Like I see it and this, I mean this in no disrespect, disrespect to land. I see it almost as an, an entropy of intellect, right? So you originally have, you have Nietzsche and then Bataille wrote a book on Nietzsche and then land wrote a book on Bataille. And now I'm writing a book on, land and i'm you know i'm like the you know i'm the end of that no one's gonna write a book on me so i'm the end of that uh it's like entropic but it's the yeah. same thing it's like just uh the same sort of madness throughout um yeah. and also i wanted to relay the experience that i saw a lot of people having uh mm-hmm. and loads of people have said it's indulgent like it's a really indulgent book uh so but i didn't want to not you know and that's why i self-published i didn't want to have to write what i didn't want to write yeah yeah i love i love that indulgence aspect of the book oh sorry q do you want to do you want to comment on that yeah i was actually going to mention that i that's a part of the book that i really liked you weren't really trying to shy away i guess from i guess in the same way as like leotard or like nick land both sort of write in that hyper stylistic you know very descriptive way i I feel like you you mentioned you're following this lineage and I, i i definitely did see that too to a large degree, there were some scenes in the book, especially like early on or right at the point of the ritual. Some of the stuff post-ritual, I was thinking a lot about. It felt like a trip of some sort mixed with like video game-esque ontology, if that makes sense. Like yeah. <laughs> uncovering reality in a way that's that's hollow. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It's weird thinking back. Like I, um, I wrote this in like a just an absolute fury. I just had to get it done. Uh, and then the last 30% was probably the most painful experience of uh of anything i've ever created because i wrote like i like to do things if i'm working on a project it has to be done like contained it doesn't matter how long i work on it but i can't take big breaks otherwise you come back to it and i'm like i don't know what that is like i i I got no clue what that is and my brain is in a completely different place i'm basically well i am a different person quite literally um so with the land book what happened was like i wrote 70 percent of it and then uh, i think some things happened in life and i was like i literally had to to stop to sort of figure stuff out Right. And then I came back to it and I was looking at it and I was like, and I think the sections I had left were like the, the really dense, complicated bits on the city and uh, on zero. So it's like, I, not only did I have to come back to this thing and like approach it anew. So I ended up just literally sitting down and like quite literally having to force it out. So there's a weird experience in the end. So, but I mean, as for the, you know, the, the brief narrative for anyone who hasn't read it is uh, uh, an unnamed uh, postgrad who's bored of philosophy and has fried his way, you know, he's burnt out from everything in life and he's just completely done in. Like he's read, I think, you know, he's read too much. He's, he's sort of revealed the, the falsity of most of the world. And uh, you know, I would like to think in a non-angsty way, but probably it comes across as a bit angsty at times. Uh, and so sort of, you know, is that the, it's the outline of three routes, which I saw, which is one is basically this, I find this route impossible, which is, you can see, you can like pull back the curtain or realize that there is a curtain that you could pull back and you could be like, no, don't want to do that. And you could just go back to normal life, right? Like we could all just suddenly stop reading philosophy and go become full-time marketers and go out for meals, you know, at the weekends and, you know, whatever, do the normal life. But I think that's an impossible route once you've, well, you can't throw up the pill that you've taken, right? The philosophy right. pill. So you can't just settle back in. So that route's gone. The other route that I outline is like suicide. You know, like, oh, God, this is, you know, this is a bit too much. Like, 
you know either way there's plenty of routes you can get to suicide i'm not condoning that i mean like almost like a metaphorical suicide like you just don't you you so don't know what to do that the best thing to do is just like almost combust or something right and then the third right. you know and then the third route the third route which is the one which and i think people get stuck between those routes for the majority of their life right they're just umming and ahhing and the third route is the one that the character you know the protagonist takes which is like right let's you know you've realized maybe this there's this pessimism there's this cosmic horror there's this you know acidic undergrowth of or chthonic would be the best word like acidic right. chthonis which is just bubbling up from beneath but you don't know what to do with it because it's like a knowable unknowable mm-hmm. and he takes the third route which is just let's just push this to the absolute limit and see what happens right uh, you know this absolutely blitz our mind uh, as far this goes as far as we can go he does a ritual and then he briefly meets emmanuel kant in what may or may not be reality oh he's on a ship then he meets mm-hmm. kant and then uh, then he's basically in hell and uh, that was my that was my experience reading Nick Land. How did you come up with this idea for the plot? Because I do notice that you mentioned it's your experience kind of like reading Nick Land or what one would experience uncovering Nick Land. But I guess how is your process working out the plot, or has it has has it been a work of theory fiction that you had in in the back of your mind and you just had to you know flush it out and actually produce the work? Or no, I still have the handwritten document which I worked on for probably like a year like the whole book is uh well that 70 percent i spoke about is handwritten i don't know where that's gone that's with like all the hard drives and things that i mentioned in the book probably now like i, I just blocked it all out of my memory because i don't want to go back there i'm happy to talk about it but like the difference between <laughs> talking about it now and like you know the the 4 a.m you know basically mm-hmm. going mad how did i come up i mean i saw some key themes of land's work which all connected which were basically the foundation is can't this is undeniable then there is the Deleuze and Guattari element, which is really the first element because that's the thing where, and like takes this on so quickly in his books, you know, this idea of like perhaps the ego or the personality being basically this mach- like this top level machinic apparatus, which once it's stripped away, you get down to this cosmic horror and that in itself is connected to the Kantianism. And then through that was the other aspects of Land's work, which is the cities and the acceleration stuff, which he's tackling in urban future. And then there is a, you know, the, the finale is you come back to the horror and then the horror for me really ends at zero. And zero is basically like, you know, I probably would have mentioned this at the end, but I'm starting and starting a new blog on Substack because, you know, that's where all the cool kids are, <laughs> um, which is going to be all about the mysticism of zero and the, the and what we can do with this nihilism, which land has sort of left us not specifically land but also Deleuze and Guattari have left us this and it seems to be the the key conclusion of that entire French tradition is the admittance of zero um and that's sort of where the book both starts and begins it's sort of like a recurrence that isn't really escapable for the character unfortunately and perhaps that was something I was probably admitting to myself was like even though I was like right I've got to write this book on land and then I'll be done with land and I can move on and really they go to the end and I'm like you know you're not you're not you're never done with a nothing's ever done is it i just have a follow-up with that in terms of the book because i know that you're borrowing or maybe diving into like the headspace of nick land and maybe his experiences but how much of this was your own experience as well like your experience through grad school or um if there's any sort of autobiographical snippets in there i don't think it's impossible to write anything which isn't autobiographical for anyone whatever you're writing no, definitely, and I'm not. I'm not going to try hide that. I mean, the whole book, the whole thing about at the start with 
Cute here in post, just wanted to drop by and mention that we lost some audio due to some connectivity issues, but overall, not much was lost. I really related to what you're saying now and in the book about one, the, the need for a line of flight from simultaneously the academic status circle jerk that you kind of lay out in the book and sort of modern life itself, which you sort of burn through rather fast. And I also really saw in the book, I, I sort of agree or like uh, subjectively uh, identify with this sort of meta-ethical imperative that the character comes up with of what you kind of call a personal madness. And a lot of the book for me is sort of like figuring out a techniques of personal madness in this sort of line of escape. I kind of reached in the book this sort of, I don't know if you want to call it a paradox or maybe it's more of a, a functionary sort of process, but uh, I see in the book this need, if you're going to take this path of personal madness, to engage in this almost like dark empiricism that the character is engaging in. While simultaneously a big problem in the book is the need for security, the need to not go all the way, so to speak. And I'm, I'm wondering, in, in your mind, what's the relationship between, say, that kind of pushing further the dark empiricism, or if we want to say maybe even deterritorialization of sorts of the ego, mm -hmm. and a need to sort of re-territorialize yourself within a framework of understanding, basically to not reach this sort of almost catatonic schizophrenia that is very possible, I, I believe, at the end of, you know, a accelerated personal madness. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, that's a really good question. I mean, the, I mean, it's sort of uh, outlined some of the things I'm trying to tackle in, in um, the new work, which is utilizing, um, I don't want to talk, well, I'm happy to talk about it, or whatever, but it's utilizing another thinker who, you know, sure, be as no surprise as Gurdjieff, who I think has sort of Ooh. found the in-between for me, um, utilizing his work as a means to answer that question. Because the problem that I think a lot of people in this sphere are having is, um, and I think I'll just go out and say it now, is that I think a lot of people in this sphere are really um, from are taking a trajectory from zero, from that burnt-out nihilism, from the position Ooh. of nothingness. And they're having these new mental experiences, right? Maybe they're not, not, not even having, but what they're having is... Uh, you know, apprehensions which are beyond anything, right? They're, they're, they're experimenting with philosophy in that style of attempting to reach, you know, what, whatever we want to call it, the other, the real, the beyond, the, the mm -hmm. outside, the new men, or the thing in itself, blah, blah, blah. We all know the unknowable and wish to touch that. Um, right. And many, you know, I think, I think that's a key aim of many people in the landing sphere is that thing. Um, but the problem is, of course, of communication and articulation, right? So one of the things I think that I realized myself in writing the book was like, this is a this is a whole book about the problem of you know the black box problem of like right how can i say that i've been even close to land's experience if if you know we, we, we're two separate you know we're two separate beings right or you, land being close to Pattaya in that experience so too and we all have different means of doing things and um you know even if i had uh undergone the the psychedelic experiences that I imagine landed to what degree are they the same so it's that problem of communication and I think for me now it's a question of finding a so if one thing I'm outlining at the moment is you have the esoteric you know the hidden the occluded which is for people who've you know found certain ways to attend to it and you have the exoteric which is that external publicly accessible world and what isn't focused on is the idea of a mesoteric which is the the midway the gateway and I see zero as that gateway and 
the passage in between and in that passage in between i think there needs to be a a methodology now the methodology of possession is a problem because you're just, i'm just coming back and it's all like this this memorable recollection of the yeah. atmosphere of what's going on i think the documentation needs to be there. So people need to be like we need to find a way to have a collectively objective experience of the outside which of course is a <laughs> is a philosophical conundrum right that's what people are trying to be in tackles trying trying to tackle since Kant. it's like saying okay you've outlined this problem and we're all trying to address the problem in our own way i'm trying to come at this with we need actual practices for how to tackle it right we can't just theorize it that's right. pointless so that but i mean the, the practice part of it would be a long way off i've got lots of lots of outline before that yeah i mean yeah i just see it as a real problem of communication it's like two, if two people did dmt and shared a trip Right. And they both could sort of say, oh, did you see that thing? It's like, yeah, but, you know, how are they ever gonna, going to be able to communicate this? And, and unless we, you know, in some sense, develop a practice uh, and a, a means to do it. And, and, and in that sense, the, the, the controversial thing I guess I'm doing in the, the Landian scheme of things is I'm going to draw back in the importance of uh, the human and the body and try and find a way to do that without it becoming neo-rationalism. Neo so yeah, yeah there's a lot going on there yeah i think it's an really interesting the, the fact that you bring up you know it's not the it collapses into what you mentioned which would be the the, the inhumanist neo-rationalist camp and i guess just with that in mind um where do you see your current trajectories going okay. um especially uh, maybe you can bring up more about your most recent book. Um, if you like, you don't have to, but you can also just see where you're going, kind of post uh, exiting modernity. Because um, it seems very interesting this this notion that we we've, we've all kind of focused in on or are kind of noticing, which is you know this post Covidian nihilism that people have been seeing. So how have you charted? Maybe you can talk a bit about your experience with uh, this post-COVID era and where do you see these new metaphysics or epistemologies going? Exit to modernity. The main new stuff in there, I mean, I put the accelerationist stuff in there. That's been around for a long time. And I put the academic in the essays in there just so my entire blog was in there. But the, but the 330 pages, which is essays on modernity, actually finishes with sort of where I'm starting now, which is it finishes on a, an essay on Gurdjieff. But the modernity stuff, there's only so many times I can say, like, in what sense if you question whether or not you actually want what modernity says you want right mm -hmm. uh, and that that has sort of sprung into bigger questions for me with regards to what is underlying that inability for people to sort of develop in any sort of sense now Gurdjieff answers this and the reason I really like Gurdjieff is because well there's a ton of reasons but I mean one quote which I was using yesterday which I'll just find because it's actually basically there already. He says to awaken means to realize one's nothingness. That is to realize one's complete and absolute mechanicalness and one's complete and absolute helplessness. Right. Mm -hmm. And he's not even a pessimist, but he, you know, he was like calling his followers murd de la murders in the shit of shit. He says you can't begin from anywhere else, but nothingness. And I sort of want to reformulate this with Deleuzean theory of productive desire, mm -hmm. desiring machines, and then also machinic desire in the sense of that, Gurdjieffian mechanicality. So Gurdjieff's point is like, yeah, you, you know, you're literally all automatons, you're all robots. And there's plenty of ways you can sort of prove that. And I want to utilize the, the Landian, Deleuzean formulations to then tackle a practical form and develop a practical form of mysticism, which isn't just people sort of 
coming in with these vague theories and being like, right. you know, here's a 3,000 word essay on the outside. And, you know, we all have this sense of, yeah, we, we get it. We get it. You know, I sort of intuitively can apprehend what you're on about, but none of us have a collective language as, as of yet or a collective means as of yet to sort of develop it. So I want to take this on a social and, you know, in that level of the socius, it is a deterministic in a Deleuzean sense existence where you have a personality which is just completely developed by pr production and desire by just this machinic element of society where things are just linked to other things and this entire personality which seems to be like a smear atop something else is just a bundle of associations which you've learned now beneath that there is the good gf the essence which, and and potentially the soul that's something that you have to build up it's a very very pessimistic philosophy really and that I sort of want to develop with the Deleuzean imminence and the Landian f formation of capitalism, basically as like a trying to find a way to exist within this as an individual and outside of it and get out of it. But I, but I want to emphasize that that's going to take a long time. Yeah. So that's my trajectory is like, my trajectory is, I still think the human is important, but it's important in the sense that it it's nothing. So the question, of course, is that on a social level, we are, we're all nihilistic now. Whether or not we're individually nihilistic is maybe a question, but we are right. definitely uh, embroiled. Everyone is embroiled. In the West, East, I can't comment on, but we're embroiled in a nihilistic atmosphere. Everything behind everything is zero. Epistemologically, we're nihilistic. It's all a, descending into a sort of moral relativism. Cosmically, we're beginning even on, you know, popular scientists are starting to say things along the lines of like, we're just bits of meat on a space rock and it's like <laughs> okay well well done you know well done for emphasizing nihilism even further so the whole culture is of a nihilism which doesn't want to admit it's nihilistic and is retaining those veil thin aesthetics that we cling to to sort of give us some form of anchor and i think really where i'm beginning from is that Gadivian point of like no you are you are nothing but to get to that is a long journey so first you have to strip back and i'm you know i'm unabashedly appropriating Gurdjieff in my own way I'm not going to deny that but the first point is like to you know what have you piled onto your personal zero what have you piled onto your personal nothingness so the first sort of step is a blitz of the ego in it but in from a Landian Deleuzean position could we call it like a libidinally materialist Buddhism yeah <laughs> I think that's a good way to describe it yeah it's like a Buddhism which is which is isn't ignorant of the way the West's going in a way. Right. I think this is one of the major Maybe. interesting through lines in a lot of your work that I've picked up on. And it's it, it brings this question to mind for myself, but I, obviously I want to pose it to you, is there's this relationship and also disparity of sorts between what you're describing as the nihilism of modernity, sort of exoteric nihilism, or maybe this nihilism that's sort of created in the social but there's also this personal need for nihilism where, like you're saying, starting from point zero, stripping yourself back in order to sort of reach the outside is a necessary process. My question is, is there a relationship between the ongoing nihilism of modernity and producing that personal nihilism? Or should we separate these two things and say, you know, even though uh, there is nihilism in the social, it's not necessarily the same kind of nihilism that is experienced on the personal level. And there's actually kind of, we should distinguish those two types of nihilism. Or is it that maybe the nihilism of modernity is kind of the same kind of nihilism and is accelerating the personal nihilism inside of in individuals? 
Yeah, I think the second thing you've said there is true. I think they're definitely mm. reciprocal. They feed back on one another. But the nihilism of modernity of society is, is the one you have to start with, right? Because that's, I think the, you could almost call the nihilism of modernity as, as the uh, elusive effects of the deeper nihilism. So as above, so below, but on a nihilistic scale, scale right? So it's yeah. like nihilism, macro nihilism begetting a micro nihilism. You know, if, if you right. have, I had a really great interview the other day with a guy called Corey Anton, who's written a really good book called How Non-Being Haunts Being. And we were speaking of nihilism and he's, we both were on this agreement because I, I'm using nihilism here, but I do in the first post of this new thing I'm doing, I sort of outline why I have a problem with the term nihilism, because I don't think nihilism goes far enough. And I think most people confuse the term nihilism for that social nihilism we're on about, right? Like, mm-hmm. oh, why do that? There's no meaning, right? Or, you right. know, why buy a nice car? There's no meaning, blah, blah, blah. Like all these forms of nihilism, you know, religious nihilism, epistemological nihilism, moral nihilism, none really tackle it in a pure sense. And I think it's really an ontological problem, right? It's not, it gets mistaken for an epistemological as in, how do we know there's no meaning right you know and as soon as you're quite asking questions about meaning the very uh point of questioning is conditioned and you're 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 begetting something which immediately is ruining your con- the conclusion you're drawing towards right there has to be some anchor which then would negate nihilism itself so my point is saying no it's an ontological thing the mm-hmm. the nihilism we're experiencing is is of our very beings now because the the important thing for for this for me is and this is sort of Corey Anton's point as well is that hidden implicitly in the that in what I see as an incorrect form of nihilism is something which actually completely negates nihilism because the majority of nihilism that we people are talking about is this sort of world weary bleaker than thou taken from the from a human and whether or not they want to admit it or not and in this is hidden, not meaning, but the idea that there should have been meaning, right? Oh, right. I'm a nihilist. Everything's so bad, which comes across as sort of this emotional whining towards the idea that there should have been something. Right. Now, most this is what I mean is in most nihilists don't go far enough. There is no space for human emotions in that mechanical sense from pure nihilism, right? You, 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 right. If, if things are meaningless, then none of that none of that matters you are you know that's purely a mechanical thing so we need to be in from there and so when we talk about um meaning and non-meaning i think we're talking about being and non-being and our problem seems to be really with non-being is basically haunting us at every step we've got rid of everything which is being like the nation the the state god Mm -hmm. family you know every single uh ontological anchor that we can develop in some sort of sense is gone and the inverse image of that it's non-being haunts it at all times so we're just constantly like chasing our tail right um this is all you know i understand this is all just seems like tripping over itself all the time but it's from that nihilism from that pure zero which i've written about before in the accelerationist stuff that i think the only thing that's the only place you can begin but most people will never get there right you know most people don't want to put the uh, the effort in to destroy their or begin to even look at their ego
this almost kind of reminds me of some like uh, Deluso Nietzschean kind of like connotations. For example, Nietzsche has fa famously said, God is dead. It almost seems like we haven't even, you know, fully encountered what that even means culturally or no. as a society. No. And in a way, we're still, if God really is dead, then we're, we're sort of gathered around the body and seeing it fester and putrefy um just to kind of draw a bleak uh, image but it's that people are almost like too scared to embrace that zero that epistemic nihilism to kind of uh really formulate or you know take take to task what Deleuze and Guattari would then you know they kind of they're called to arms in a thousand plateaus of find new lands and you know deterritorialize here uh, but we always have a you know a patch of land here and there you know I think it's a good uh it's a good sort of node to use the the death of god um because if you know nietzsche nietzsche was obviously a smart guy um and if he wanted to use a different word he would have you know he could have said god is gone or god is no more which is completely different but he's you know and i of course saying god is dead packs a bunch and that was one of the original uh controversies is that by saying dead you're mortalizing god and therefore the 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 whole uh eternal eternity eternal uh, existence of god is then completely thwarted by that but of course there's loads of problems there that i don't think nietzsche probably missed i mean he probably saw them and that's probably why it's such an interesting point is that firstly the the only things that can be reborn are things that die um so there's that and i mean saying oh yeah god is dead you say well okay nietzsche i mean have you read the bible yeah god literally did die and he came back to life three days later but also the, the corpse thing, I think, is the more interesting angle of God is dead. Of course, we have killed him, but there's 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 no admittance of the death, right? It's sort of set up and we've dressed up God and no one wants to admit. So in that death of God, people, I think people need to remember that Nietzsche, in taking on organized religion and in taking on this notion of God, Nietzsche is just taking on um, the most popular to use the terms of Marx, opium of the day. And I think if Nietzsche was alive today, he'd you know, say democracy is dead and we have killed it or something along those lines. So in doing so, he's he is basically taking on the the contemporary contextual ontological anchor of the day, which allows us not to drift back to zero, but you know, keep territorialized. And he's saying, no, 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 ter your territory is dead, but people are still like holding on to it, right? And I think maybe this is the point we're all trying to make is saying like, right, let's slowly start taking away our territory. How far can we actually admit? How far, how far can we look uh, internally and destroy the territory that's been created into us? And then what happens then? You know, in that, I mean, using Gurdjieffian languages, there's buffers and there's, the, you know, the biggest one would be there's buffers. There's things in us which have been crystallized, which have developed, which have sort of amalgamated, which we won't, you know, staring into the abyss is just staring into your own your own sort of um personal ontological nihilism and there's going to be buffers in the way which you go i can't go any further or you just you'll find a way to self-justify and not allow yourself to destroy certain parts of your things or admit things to yourself but the more we address the false territory which is sort of crystallized in us i guess it is it's a going to be a sort of an essay or a piece on a constant process of of individual deterritorialization which is trying to make its way back to zero and from then we can sort of uh, be reborn I'm starting to sound like a preacher but that's uh that's the yeah so there the death of god i think relates to that in that way
Um, I have a thing that I want to mention, which is just the kind of like this relation between this Nietzschean, Ubermenschian task, not to collapse that into some sort of like humanism, but as like, what is the, the post-humanism, right? What, it, what, what does that mean without falling back into some sort of humanism? And then on top of that, adding on your, you know, your search for methodology, that in its relation to theology or, for example, theological institutions for a long time have had a monopoly in terms of its relation to, you could call it God, to the outside. They formalized ways of living which try to get us as close to the notion of the outsider, to ways that we can be more esoteric. And so without falling into the same pitfalls of immunitizing your own idols, how do you see that Ubermenschian task of not holding on to what's already been lost? Uh, yeah, it's a good, it's a good, um, it's a good question. I mean, I would take the, the Gajifian angle and say like, that's a long way down the line. And I, I don't want to put myself like up on a pedestal. I'm not saying I've sort of made it. This is a journey for me as well. Um, I'm just trying to sort of formalize it, I guess, in a sense that down the line, people could use it and try to stay one step ahead of the game in a way. But in terms of the Ubermenschian thing, that's a higher level of being. And that's like an implicit problem of communication of you won't know it until you get there. So let's, you know, it's like going from the exoteric to the esoteric. Let's just maintain our confidence. I think maybe this is one of the things I wanted to make a bit clearer, I guess, is that in a lot of the writing on land and on the sphere and on the outside, it's either exoteric or it's like just made this leap. And it's constantly doing that even in the same paragraph. And you're like, it's the mesoteric. It's that process, the methodology, the the means and also the, the development of a communication, which is the important thing. So it's all well and good saying like, oh, what's the Ubermenschian task? But it's like, we don't, we won't know the Ubermensch because we're just not on that level. Um, so it's all about getting there first and admitting to the, is baby steps, <laughs> mm -hmm. baby steps to the outside. I'm, I'm interested in the outside and the entire nuance and complexity of, of what that means. But specifically, there's this question of, uh, outside of time, you know, and sort of a personal escaping of time, but also a relationship to time that seems to be different if you take this sort of more occluded path or relationship to time. But I, I'm wondering how much of sort of our task, if you want to call it the Ubermenschian test for like ourselves and as a social body or organism, is it to commune with what I'll call gods or entities that, that seem to exist outside of time? How much of our personal life inside of time can be changed by changing our relationship to those that are outside of time? In what sense would you want it to be changed? Basically, uh, I guess it would almost be like a ordering of priorities, so to speak, of basically reorienting your personal religion or personal spirituality or even a social form of spirituality or a sort of social communion with some sort of entity outside of time, you know, what, what kind of used to be gods. I've always really found it interesting in the, in the Schreiber case in his autobiography when he says God doesn't understand the living, he only understands the dead. There's something oddly true to me about that. And, and I think there is sort of this disconnect that impacts the way that society functions when we choose to basically commune with something that's outside of us rather than trying creating this like imminent body reliant on just like 
the signs we use to create our daily life or the social sort of significations that we do in our daily lives. The thing is that communion is very difficult and it's very straining. Right. And I think I maybe one of the things I want to make clear in, in that emphasis on the practice is that it's the development of a system like it, combining the ideals of natural philosophy, natural science, right? The, the old school natural science, which was truly up for a sort of a documented experiment, experimentation, you know, you, know, you could almost call it a, an experimentation in communion, but an experiment in that true sense of documenting it in that way, I think there needs to be some formalism to it. it can't just keep being these sort of almost poetic gasps at it now right. i think and i think that can happen without it being subsumed into either camp too far right it doesn't just turn into this holdalin or trackle type poetic madness but at the same time it doesn't turn into parapsychological stifling of experience into pre-existing like oh this is uh you know this is a psychological problem where blah 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 blah. you know it's not that it's it's a completely new form as as far as i'd like well that's yeah that's a lot that's a lot to put on my shoulders to say it's new there's nothing new under the sun but it's a new (laughs) form of attempting to communicate this and and that's a huge thing and i think it relates back to that that idea we're talking about you know at the start of my book that person who's burnt out is that the problem that you're faced with is when you've been given like i said everything that the modern world uh, promised you what you've really been given is is the the terminus of materialism right? right you've been to the peak of materialism in every sense right you've i don't know you might have had promiscuous sex you've done a load of drugs you've everything it said is the best of the best of materialism you've done and right. so what you're left with is well the only place i can now really uh see myself wishing to truly be content and fulfilled and wish to continue doing this is if in some way i can have a beyond now when i say the word beyond i think you that can be meant in a like in the transcendental sense in the sense that one thing i want to always emphasize is that the outside is in us it is our buffers to the outside internally which hamper our connection to it the outside is is pure time or pure production they can sort of be made synonymous even though linear time is false it still has to be of time it isn't right. in time but it has to be of time right it has it has to have some connection to time and and then when we begin to think about you know dreams or daydreams or fantasies or the idea of subjective time in relation to when you really pay attention to something and an hour expands or a minute expands or when you have a adrenaline fueled moment of what is in reality is five seconds but people say it felt like it lasted forever these mm-hmm. are uh these are as far as i'm concerned uh the places we can begin to formalize a connection with the outside and begin to document it and it's right. from there i sort of want to begin and, and so i think what i'm trying to do is utilize that kajifian form of occult psychology apply that to a transcendental framework where I'm basically saying what we consider uh, occult psychological buffers are really these uh, crystallized forms of the inside, which stop us from being able to attend the productive divine of the outside. I know to anyone who doesn't know the sphere, if you are listening to this, I quite literally now realize I sound like a madman. So (laughs) that's a good thing. Yeah. It's a good, maybe, (laughs) Yeah, I think that that you you uh, took my poorly worded question and you actually answered the one that I actually wanted to ask you. But I, I have a pedantic follow up because 
you know, it's, it's hard for me to conceptualize these things, but I'm trying to sort of see how much of my own subjective conceptualization sort of matches the intention of what you're trying to say, both in the book and in this interview. Basically, as I, as I am kind of like understanding this process, is it true that so we, if we have these sort of transcendental, almost divine things inside of us that we're trying to reach and that we commune with, is it a problem of the things outside of time that we can experience sort of purely once they enter in time, there's like an entropy with, with uh, communication or articulation of those things that seem to me to be immune to entropy because of their sort of what we consider maybe an immortal quality or an outside of our sort of system of thermodynamics. Is it a question of trying to maintain, you know, as, as pure a level of communication with, with those things that are quote unquote outside of time, or are those things also sort of subject to an entropy? Is it, is it possible to engage with entities, concepts, things that are actually immune to the entropy that, that is kind of built into our own experience? Man, there's a, there's a huge question, which I like yeah. loosely have formulated answers to, which need much work. But ultimately, this is back to like, to what degree could we say that we've communicated with something which was in a different time or of pure time and that we're not in? But I mean, that question of those things coming in and then saying that once they enter in, are they subject to entropy? I would just flat out say no, because you have to remember that when things are entering in, there is no such thing as entering that. It's only an illusory uh, form of representation due to our faculties. So in the sense that it enters in, I mean, I understand what you mean. You know, and that gets, I think, to a degree... The whole notion of the Schopenhauerian notion of every single thing is just constantly representations mm-hmm. is something that probably I'll try to tackle, which is <laughs> it's like huge, but but that is yeah. an unproductive conversation. Well, how do you know that's just not representation? It's like back to a Cartesian, like, how do you know it's not just an oasis? Okay, well, great. You know, that doesn't get it doesn't get us anywhere. And that's why I think we need the formal framework and almost like a uh, I don't know, uh, something, something. But as for like, you know communicating communing right that is a a, now like i've had the realization it's a far deeper problem so that first that book is almost like a you know i don't know it's it's the the almost the ramblings of someone who's been thrown head first and they've they haven't had time to shop around and like be able to formalize it and they're it's it's an experience of the outside which is articulated in the language of the inside right. and i guess what i'm trying to do is formulate a mesoteric language that could be shared which then can be sort of developed in a way to almost you know, doc- yeah as i say document these experiences yeah it seems like there might be uh, when i think of like articulating a language of the outside i mean this is kind of this is kind of, I don't even know if I should call it crass, but it's its sort of a bad example. But I the, the closest thing I can come up with is like if you take a psychedelic or especially people who have uh, done DMT say that there's sort of like, they explain it as like this language that you you somehow understand that's like highly pictorial or almost like a platonic sort of structure that this language outside is almost highly pictorial or or kind of exists almost as a diagram. And I'm wondering if there's a way to sort of burn off the the kind of distortions that are sort of, you know, third dimensional language have where we have these separations of like phonetic to 
pictorial or like pronunciation rather than I guess uh, in Eastern languages, as like Derrida points out, they're, they're like better because they have more of that kind of pictorial, almost extra dimensional quality to them. Do you think that in creating a language with the outside, is that sort of the type of language that you see would be sort of a better articulation of those concepts? Or is that just sort of like someone's subjective distortion of what the outside is like, you know, if that mm. makes sense? Yeah, it does make sense. And I mean, the idea of subjective is the important thing there is like, before we begin to describe things, we need to make sure that our language hasn't been tampered, sort of tampered with, and that right. we're not, we're not just working in an associative framework. Um, and so that's where the process will start is in like a, like a, almost a continental blitz of, of ego. So like, before we can mm -hmm. do anything, it's like, we need to get rid of that associative form of communication and begin from, from an objective standpoint and that will take years yeah <laughs> so i guess this is like a it's just a, it's gonna be a long project so but but until that point i can't really say right, right. But, I, but i understand your the problem is like the dmt thing is to what degree is uh, is a subjective and i mean this is something mm -hmm. that andrew uh i'd interviewed him about dmt i should remember his name andrew gallimore was saying yeah. is that they, you know, they needed to almost develop that technology so they could stay in there. You know, that brings up the question again of what is stay in there because you're talking about a duration and what is duration in this new thing. And he's saying, you know, they're beginning to document shared experiences of things which are happening right. in the DMT. And we also sort of both laughed about the, the, you know, the representation problem, like, oh, this is just all representations. It doesn't help and it doesn't get right. <laughs> anywhere. And I think almost there's something to be said of like, well, all right, even if it isn't representations, I think to a certain degree, you can say that you've exited the the realm of purely subjective associations. Right. Um, so, and I mean, that's the, that's sort of the starting point, I think. But it's like, uh, yeah, but it's going to be fairly accelerative, I think. It almost sounds like the, you know, it's like the task that, you know, all of modernity seems to have had, which is the overcoming of Kant, you know, that transcendental horizon. Um, you know, it's a difficult task and, you know, it's like, even if you do have communion with the outsider, if you do think that you've had, you know, interaction with the outside, it's still within the theater. And so even if you have this, I think Land has this in an interview where he's like, even if you have this complex story about what the outside of the theater looks like, you're still using, you know, the, the tools of the, the theater oh. itself, the inside. In a way, it's like, there's an example, you could say the, the pneumogram, how do we develop these diagrams or these technologies to create portals with the outside and kind of you know document them create methodologies and then you know create some sort of quote-unquote universal tertiary language well i probably wouldn't be using the pneumogram not again um <laughs> the the language i think is just going to go back to the old understanding of what psychology really meant so not like CBT or anything like that, the older form of psychology, which was like a an amalgamation of sort of, I guess nowadays you would say, yeah, psychology, but also science in that natural science form, occultism, religious practice, and everything sort of amalgamated into one and art as well. So it's a lot for me to try and explain now. But I think any formal language which is being shared needs to begin from uh, the archaic form of psychological standpoint. So it needs to begin from, you know, are we all beginning from the same position, psychologically speaking? And then, and then I mean, I guess people would say, well, you're going to get confused with the philosophy of mind here. And that, I guess that's something I'd have to emphasize. But yeah, 
There's only so much I can say about it at the moment because it's not, you know, still working on it. Well, Meta, um, in terms of that, have you had any, and I don't want to prior, you don't have to share if you, you don't want to, have you had any experiences with the outside? I, I think it'd be, we'd be due for a, a story time if you have one. <laughs> yeah, I've had, uh, but, the, but I mean, people, uh, people think so much of them. People think like I'm going to be like, oh yeah, I was walking down the street and, you know, like <laughs> yeah, a demon, like just popped out of the ground in a puff of, puff of black smoke. And I mean, even David Beth, who developed Cosmic Gnosis and, and is a Haitian voodoo uh, priest, even he was joking about this. People say like, oh, wow, you deal with demons. He's like, yeah, they're not popping out of the floor. That's not, that's what it is. And I mean, the outside is a huge encompass, a hugely encompassing term. But yeah, I mean, when I was doing the Franz Bardon stuff, I've spoken about this before, I had a few with related to intuition and number and understanding, just understanding exactly what to do when and weird things when I was driving, like knowing to swerve out of the way of things or things that were going to happen. I would like to think that with the Gurdjieff practices, what he calls self-remembering, I've had just beautiful glimpses of what <laughs> what life can be like. So yeah. that is sort of uh which is you know just so much more than the the sort of mechanical sleep that he'd call it and the Deleuzean sleep of desiring production which i would say most everyone is in including myself mm -hmm. but there's ways out of that so yeah i've had some but they're not they're not like you know i'm stood in front of whatever um lucifer you know it's not it's, <laughs> yeah. it's not what it is and i think the misconception i mean the misconception that the outside is like this horrible place is uh, is is silly. I think people when people think the outside, they think like some black cosmic Lovecraftian hell. It's like well, right. no, we have no way to, we have no means to address that. And I mean, if we're speaking of the outside as that new mental realm, then in what sense can't it be? It's surely it's also connected to you know the hermeticism of Franz Bardon and also the hermeticism of Pythagoras. And we were all, everyone was just attending to this using their own language um, and their own means. And I mean, sure, you could just say that what I'm doing is a new language. I'd, you know, I wouldn't push against that. But the idea that, you know, and I mean, maybe I need to move away from Land's language because Land's language does gravitate towards like a Lovecraftian, you know, sort of, oh, we're, you know, we're just cosmic detritus floating around in the universe, blah, blah, blah. Mm -hmm. I think the, and you know, unfortunately for all the the uh, pessimistic fanboys, unfortunately the, the outside could equally be life affirming, mm -hmm. uh, and that's that's how I see it, at least. So, you know, Deleuze and Guattari talk about. You no, know, it's Deleuze who talks about. Is he, who, who does he impregnate? Spinoza. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> From behind, and you know, thinking about yeah. So I found the quote, and it was uh, it's a letter from Deleuze to a friend of his, Michelle Quizol. Uh, and he says, I saw myself as taking an author from behind and giving him a child that would be his own offspring, yet monstrous. Uh, it was really important for it to be his own child because the author had actually uh, had to actually say all I had him saying, but the child was bound to be monstrous too because it wrote from all sorts of shifting, slipping dislocations, blah, blah, blah. He says he thinks his book on Bergson is a good example. So in that sense, I think that's what I want to do with Land's philosophy because I think that's what it needs and in and in that sense the child of landian philosophy which is his own yet monstrous would be the inverse right it would no longer yeah. be pessimistic so yeah. i want to utilize uh that landian landian continuation of kant marx and deleuze and guattari 
and turn that into almost a life philosophy, a mystical life philosophy. Yeah. So the monstrous child will be happy. It's using the most monstrous weapons of war to, you know, to do something productive. It's like using napalm to warm up. To like, it's like you're gonna be like roasting marshmallows over napalm, right? <laughs> yeah. Like using the worst weapons of philosophy against themselves. Because I'm bored of the nihilism, and that's why I'm starting from there. Because I think there's more to it than that. That doomer yeah. to bloomer meme. <laughs> yeah. Doomer to bloomer. Doomer to bloomer. I don't know if I consider myself a bloomer. No. Yeah. No. Yeah, no. But not a doomer. No, no, I'm not a doomer either. I'm a self-improver. <laughs> <laughs> Like the woke, it's doomer, uh, broke, bloomer, bespoke, self-improver. Well, yeah. then, uh, um, if you'd like, we can definitely start wrapping up. But um, do you have any things you'd like to share? Any projects that are upcoming or any any other uh, points? I've got a few things, but I don't want to announce them too soon because they're not super, super close to being done. So, yeah, i got you know stuff in the pipeline as, as usual have to keep it burning but um yeah thanks for having me on you know and there'll be there'll be good stuff to come just for me personally it's it's really it's really nice to to get to talk to you because I, I really do think that you're on like the bleeding edge of philosophy and you know the more occluded theory and i i found it to be kind of a major influence on my own writing practices and whatnot so uh it's just really nice to get to have like a full conversation about your work and i really appreciate you coming on the podcast that's cool man thanks very much thanks very much yeah thanks for coming on but i i really appreciate it but all right well thank you everyone for listening uh hope you enjoyed this one and hopefully you're back for more like subscribe and share it with your friends it means a lot to us <laughs>